Welcome to the Grace of Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. We are in week eight of our throwback sermon series, talking about Sunday school classics. Sunday school classics. So why do we need to revisit these quote-unquote Sunday school classics? Well, it's not because what was taught in Sunday school was wrong, but it's likely oversimplified. And there is so much to be taken from the stories that we are visiting or revisiting in the scripture that we believe it would do you a disservice if as a church and as we organize our preaching schedule, we simply say, ah, that was taught in Sunday school and we just move past it and don't revisit the richness of these stories and the full breadth of what God would have for us in them. So today we're going to talk about the story of the prodigal son. Who's familiar with the story of the prodigal son? A few of us, right? Um, so one thing I've noticed about this, and this is just like the quick teaser to what maybe we don't understand from the Sunday school version. Did you know that the word prodigal does not mean wayward? Did you know that? Like we read this and we're like the prodigal son, that's the wayward son. It's just like the son that's turned his face from his father and went the other way. That's not actually the definition of prodigal. And I was an adult when I learned that, when I read Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God, and I was like reading the cover and I'm like, prodigal God? How can God be wayward? Like, and so I was like, I need to look into this, right? That seems a little heretical. But prodigal actually means to have an extravagant amount of resources, yet be reckless with how you utilize them. So it's an abundance of resources and a reckless utilization of them. So when we think prodigal son, it's a son who had a lot, or sons, spoiler alert, who had a lot, but were reckless with them, did not steward them wisely, effectively, in a way that honored God and those around them. So I wanted to make sure and give you that before we get into the scripture. So now when you're hearing this, you're, you're hearing it through that lens. So this story takes place in Luke chapter 15, and it starts in verse 11. If you want to read along, feel free to read in your Bible or on the screens with me. I'll be reading out of the NIV. It says this, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him And was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is live again. He, has, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you have for us through it this morning. I thank you that this isn't just some ancient text written to an ancient Near Eastern people, but this is your living word inspired by you for us. So, Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us today, that you would help us to know what our next step in following you looks like. So we thank you. We pray your Holy Spirit would come. Motivate my words and come upon the hearts and minds of each person in here to receive what you have for them. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> so the typical main idea of this story that we hear and is taught in Sunday school is that the story of the prodigal son is a picture of God's love for us as his children. Like, God loves us as his children. And God's love does not depend on our faithfulness. It's actually unconditional. That he loved us while we were still sinners. And that's a shout out to Romans 5.8. That's, that's kind of the, the typical understanding of this. Now, praise God for this news, right? Like, that's great news. And it is true. I'm not saying that, oh, what you learned in Sunday school is wrong. I'm just saying yes, and, and praise God for that. But it's not all of the truth that's contained in this story. It's not necessarily complete in what I believe God would have us learn from this. And I mentioned this book earlier, but the story of the prodigal son, which as Tim Keller and others have pointed out, could actually be referred to as the prodigal God, is about the essence of true Christianity. And this idea that God joyously welcomes repentant sinners into his presence. He joyously welcomes repentant sinners into his presence. And this truth is important and essential for our faith. It's essential for our faith. But another thing that sticks out in this well-known parable as you read through it, and I'll just speak for me as, as I read through it, is this sentence that the father repeats twice. He first states it as his reasoning for throwing the party in verse 24. He says, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. 
Then he repeats it in his plea to the older brother to come into the celebration in verse 32. He says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. So it's a story of great joy because a sinner has been changed from death to life. Was lost, but then was found. Now this chapter begins by noting that many tax collectors, which were notoriously kind of scoundrels in the society, they were not looked upon well, that these many tax collectors and sinners were listening to Jesus. But the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling, it says in verse 2 of chapter 15. They were saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus here is responding to their allegations by telling three stories. This isn't just like some random story that Jesus is just walking along and you get to hear like insight to his daydream. He is addressing a specific thing that is happening. And these first two stories he tells are about a shepherd who finds his lost sheep and about a woman who finds a lost valuable coin. And in both stories, the lesson's the same. There is a great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, over one person that would come that from being lost to being found, from dead to being alive in a relationship with their father. There is a great joy to be found in that. And then after those two short stories, Jesus tells the story of a lost son, which is really about two lost sons. This isn't just about the rebellious one. This is about both sons. Because when the first son returns home again, we see this theme of great joy because he was lost and he's been found. But then Jesus concludes with the angry response of the older brother to the joy of the father. He's like, how dare you be excited? This guy, just, he's ruined our family. He's made a mockery of us. And now you're celebrating him because he's returned? How dare you? Right? Like there's this, this sentiment in the older brother. And by, by juxtaposing these two brothers, by showing this story, Jesus is skillfully confronting his critics, which are the Pharisees in this moment, by painting them into the picture and leaving them to consider the question, will you rejoice as God brings a dead sinner back to him? That's what he's confronting the Pharisees with. Like, okay, you're prideful. You think you got all that going and you following all the rules, you modern day older brother. Will you rejoice when a dead sinner comes back to God? That's what he's confronting them with. Or will you remain alienated from relationship with your father out of re religiosity and moralism and not actually celebrate the things that bring joy to the heavenly father? That is what he is getting at here in the context of the conversation and narrative that's happening. So before we draw some lessons from this, this story, unlike, like a lot of others, is very important for us to understand the cultural setting of it that we need to understand the dynamics of this story and all of the details in it in its cultural setting. So this parable begins with what Jesus' audience would have considered a shocking incident. It would have been like this appalling, like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I thought that stuff only happens in soap operas. Like, that's really happening right now. Are soap opera still a thing? Is that reference outdated now? I guess it's outdated. So this shocking incident is this. I need to update my material. 
a young man asks his father to give him a share of the family estate. A young man asks his father to give him a share, like, now, give me my share of the family estate. In this culture, when a father died, the oldest son would have received two-thirds of the family estate, and the remaining third would be split amongst the other heirs in the family. Sometimes a father might voluntarily divide up his property to his sons before his death so that they could be establishing their kind of own situations, their own farms, you know, their own families. But this was something that would be done um, on the father's initiative. But it was unthinkable for a son to ask his still healthy father to give him his share of the inheritance. It was an act of great disrespect towards the father. In essence, what this young boy is saying is, I don't care about you, and I want nothing further to do with you. That's what this, this ask is saying. I don't care about you, and I want nothing further to do with you. You might as well be dead as far as I'm concerned. I want the money. I want what I have coming to me, and I want it now. Now, also in this culture, the inheritance would consist primarily of family land that was handed down from generation to generation, and it normally would have been sold in, like, dire financial situations, like there's some sort of pestilence or something that comes through, and it, it puts the family in a hardship, so they got to sell off a chunk of land so that they can survive, but for no other reason would you sell off this family land that's been passed down from generation to generation. And even if in an emergency you would sell it, it was often to a kinsman, somebody that was related somehow. So it kind of stayed in the family. But to sell the family property and take the proceeds to move out of the promised land into a distant Gentile country was shocking. Culturally, this was absolutely shocking. People in the village that were living around them would have wondered, what is going on in that family? Right, the gossip mill would have been churning. They were just like, what's happening over at the Smith's house or whatever? Like, what is going on? This guy's selling off property. He's leaving. What happened in that family for that son to do such a thing? What could it be? It's kind of like when you see a U-Haul at your neighbor's house and you're wondering, like, who's moving? Where are they going? What happened? Did he lose a job? Like, what, what is happening? There's a U-Haul there, right? Or if, like, a bunch of flashing lights roll into town, everybody's concerned with what's happening at the neighbor's house. It would be a very similar thing, except I don't think they had fire trucks and U-Hauls, but I think you get my point. What is going on over at their house? What is wrong? And it would have brought in shame to the father, and it would have made the boy a social outcast where he likely could never return and be in any sort of healthy relationship or have any sort of dignity or respect. And so the father's response to this would have shocked Jesus' audience because normally a Middle Eastern father would have slapped an imprudent son in the face. When I'm like, how dare you? Now, I don't advise doing that today, but that would have been what would have happened likely in this situation. Then he would have driven the son out of the family. He would have disinherited him. But, but the father doesn't do that here. And it's fascinating he simply complied by dividing his wealth and giving him his share. Without anger, at least as far as we can tell, 
the father endures this terrible humiliation and the pain of a son who rejects his love and wants to get as far away from him as he possibly can. And then we see next, this younger son takes the money from selling the land. And to sell it quickly, he likely would have had to sell it at a deficit of what it was worth. Probably got a fraction of what it was worth. And he moves to a distant country and he squanders everything with loose living. Now Jesus does not stipulate whether such loose living involved prostitutes, but the angry accusation of the older brother was of such that that may have been a part of it. But a lot of people often just attribute that as a fact. That was an accusation of the older brother, and we all all know how older siblings can get when we're indignant with our younger siblings, right? So Jesus doesn't say that, but um, that is referred to. So we don't know if that's true. Uh, But then two things happen. Due to his own stupidity, this boy runs out of money. So he finds himself with nothing. And due to God's providence, a severe famine hits the country where he is living. But he's not yet low enough to return to his father and admit his mistakes. Uh, he's pretty low now, we could, we could imagine, but he's not yet low enough to humble himself and return. Rather, he attaches himself to a citizen of that country, and he's assigned to what would be the worst job in the world for a Jew, to feed pigs. Jewish culture and Jewish people were not too fond of pigs and pork, and this was like the most unclean thing that a Jew could do, and that was his job. The young man became so hungry that he was tempted to eat the food that they were feeding the pigs. Now he hits rock bottom. Now he hits it. Hard times have a funny way of making things more clear in our lives, don't they? Of bringing clarity in our lives. So this young man comes to his senses. He thinks about his father's hired men, and they all have more than enough bread. They're more than well provided for, yet here he is dying of hunger and inhabited by swine. He's in their midst. So he comes up with this plan. He recognizes that he sinned against God, and he says heaven, but heaven is a uh, figure of speech for God and against his father. So he determines that he's going to go home, he's going to return to his father, he's going to confess his sin and ask the father to make him one of his hired men. Not even like, dad, will you take me back in, but can I please just work for you? Perhaps he's thinking that this arrangement would allow him to someday pay back the money that he'd squandered so the family could recover the sold land. I don't, I don't know his intentions, but we could imagine being in this situation and all that might be rolling through his head as he has this extreme moment of humility, this humble pie, so to speak, and is coming back to his father. So he gets up and he heads for home. Now, this young man would be humiliated just to show his face. Like I mentioned earlier, there was a a great humiliation and, and disgrace that would have happened because of what he did to his family. So showing face in the village would have been extremely hard, but he does it anyway. And then here's where it gets really cool. The father sees the boy coming from a long way off. Did you pick that up in the story? It wasn't like ding dong and dad's in the kitchen or do, you know, doing something and he just hears it and he comes to the door. His dad sees him from a long way off. And then <clears throat> when he sees his son, the father felt deep compassion for him. He sees him and he feels a deep compassion for him. Now, 
think about this. The fact that his father saw him from a long way off indicates in the context of the story that his dad was eagerly anticipating his return. This wasn't just like a, you know, one of the servants said, hey, there's a stranger rolling in because they didn't recognize him because now he's got this long beard and he's, you know, unsanitarily dirty and, and all of these things. Like each day his father must have been going out to the front, scanning in the distance, just hoping, believing, anticipating the return of his lost son, that this wayward son might be coming home. And when he saw him, he felt a deep compassion for him. And this caused him to do something that would have been shocking to Jesus's audience. He ran to him. Now to us, we're like, well, yeah, we're in Eugene. That's just what people do. They run. Like, what's the big deal? He ran to him, right? Like, we don't understand it. But in this culture, patriarchs did not run. Patriarchs did not run. It was undignified. It, was, it would have been undignified for him to do this. And to run, you had to pull up your floor-length robe, exposing the lower half of your legs, which was also undignified for an older man to do, showing your bare legs. It was disgraceful. Now, boys might run in this culture, and some young men, but older men did not run. But this father throws aside his dignity, throws aside every posture he might have out of some self-righteousness or out of some hurt or offense. And he pulls up his robe and with compassion in his heart, he runs to his son that is returning. And when he gets to him, the father ignores the son's stench and he falls on his neck and he tenderly kisses him. He is excited for this return. Now this would have been completely unexpected and shocking. Not just to the son, but to the reader of this story. Because in this culture, a wayward son might have been grudgingly permitted to come back into the village. Like, we'll allow you to be in our zip code, but for sure not in our home. You can come back into the village, but you will be humiliated, you will be scorned, and you will have to walk out a very uncomfortable road of reacclimating into healthy relationship. The father would have been unavailable, would have been distant and aloof. Like when David allowed his murderous son Absalom to return, he refused to see him for two years in 2 Samuel 14. For two years. And this was David, pretty, a guy we're pretty fond of in the scriptures most of the time. Then when this boy sees his father, he would have been made to grovel. The father coldly would have set forth the demands for the boy to fulfill so that he could earn restoration into the family. There would not be any show of affection, in the father, but this father hugs and kisses his son. His heart is filled with compassion, not coldness and distance. This is a profound reaction to the returning of somebody who would have hurt him miserably, made him an outcast, and humiliated him in the village. And then the son begins his rehearsed statement of confession, right? He's, he, but he leaves out the part of becoming one of his father's hired men. He starts to say, God, I've, I've sinned against you and, and heaven. And I think that he actually didn't get through his full like confession because I think the father interrupted him with his command to the servants to run, get him a robe, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet because the father was not concerned with his rehearsed confession. He was just ecstatic that the son had returned. He didn't say, hey, you need to say everything right so you can crack the code to like 
me loving you again. He was just excited and full of compassion that the son returned. So he tells his servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us celebrate. Now the best robe would have been the father's own robe worn only on the most important occasions. So he's saying, bring out the special robe. That means we're, we're really throwing down tonight. We really have something to celebrate. And the robe and the ring and the sandals all showed that the boy was being welcomed back, not as a hired hand or a disgraced son who now needed to earn his way back into the family. He is welcomed back with full acceptance. Full acceptance. Not, we'll see if you really mean it, but I'm so glad to have you back. He stumbled home barefoot and smelling like the pigsty, but the father extravagantly welcomes him in this outburst of undeserved, unexpected, and joyous love. And then he kills the fattened calf, brings in some music, a band, if you will, calls in the whole village, and he throws a party. What a scene and what a countercultural response to something that could be like laced with so much offense and hurt. Now, from a cultural standpoint, if Jesus would have ended the story here, his Pharisaic audience would have just shrugged it off. They'd be like, okay, whatever. Um, this story went against many of their cultural standards and against their religious ideas because no self-respecting earthly father would have done that, would have done what this father did. But it wouldn't have cut to them and made them consider a question for themselves because they would have thought to themselves, surely God's not like this, right? This, is, this isn't how the God that we have set up rules and religion around operates. God doesn't welcome filthy sinners into his holy presence, does he? That's, that's what the Pharisees would have been thinking to themselves, that he only accepts those that keep his commands, but he has nothing to do with those filthy sinners, because from their standpoint, they have to earn God's favor, and therefore they imply that on everybody else's life and the way they live, and the way they live. But Jesus doesn't end the story there. He tells us about the other lost son, and if you miss this point, you miss the whole thing, that the older brother is just as lost. It's just packaged differently. He comes in from the field as he approaches the house, and he hears the music and the dancing. But rather than going in to check on it himself and be like, oh, what's going on? He sends a servant, go see what's going on and report back to me. Like, man, this guy. He won't even go check it out for himself. And maybe, maybe he'd feared that this would happen, right? This, this brother of mine, I can't, I can't believe he did this. And if I ever see him again, so help me what I will have to say to him. We can kind of put ourselves in the... In, in the, this guy's shoes, if we think about it, like, we, we've been wronged. We've been offended. We know what it's like. Like, I don't ever want to see that person again. So he calls one of the servants and asks him, what's going on? And the servant explains the situation. And the older brother is incensed, and he refuses to go in. He's like, I will have no part of this nonsense. Now, the culturally proper thing, how, how this would play out, would be for him to go in to scowl from across the room at his no-good brother, and by his countenance, he would passively, aggressively communicate his disdain and disapproval of this situation. Just removing yourself wasn't how things were handled in this culture. It would have been like, I'll go in, 
and I'll let everybody know how I feel, right? And just scowling, looking across the room, shaking your head, you know, the, the lazy kind of communication. And he would have let everyone know that he disapproved of this party. And then later in private, he would have confronted his father. But instead, he humiliates his father in front of all the guests by refusing to even go into the party. And again, the father responds in a way that's very unexpected. He goes out and he tenderly pleads with his older son, showing the father's love for that son as well. But this son is just plain rude. And rather, rather than respectfully addressing him as father, he says in verse 29, Look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours, and yet you've never given me a young goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. Now this would have been a shocking outburst for this type of familial arrangement or situation. Because he's saying like, look, dad, you owe me big time. I've never done anything wrong. I've never made you look bad. And he's like so infuriated that he hasn't gotten what he thinks he deserves. I haven't even gotten a young goat, much less a fattened calf. He's accusing his father of being unfair. He's insulting his father of being prodigal or extravagantly reckless by spending his wealth on this no good son of his. He won't even call him his brother. He calls him his, no, like his son, your son, right? He won't even associate himself with him. So the father responds again with gentleness to this rude assault on his honor. And he says, son, you've always been with me and all that's mine is yours. He has always had access to everything the father has. He's always been there with him, but he's been so distant from his father that he's never utilized the abundant resources he had access to. He's been right there with his dad, but he's been so relationally distant that he's never utilized it or taken advantage of it. And all he can do now is sit outside and sulk and miss out on the party. This father ends with a final appeal. He says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours, he doesn't say my son, he associates him with him. This brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost but has now been found. So hopefully that gives you a picture of what this familial interaction with it looked like. Because the reality is if, if we talked about what this kind of conflict or like a fence might look like in a dozen of the families represented in this room, we'd probably get at least 10 different stories of how that would play out, right? Like this is like an intimate family situation that is going to be handled differently across many spectrums. And back in this time, there were many more cultural norms that were actually communicating attributes of God to these people that if we miss out on, we miss out on the whole picture of who Jesus is communicating to us that our heavenly father is and how we can approach him and how he reacts to these things, how he receives us, that he is not quick and easy to offend, but he is filled with compassion. He eagerly awaits us to come to him, to return to him. Even if we're gone for a day or if we're gone for years, he's looking, he's searching the skyline. I can't wait for my kid to come back. And if we miss the cultural aspects of this, we miss a lot of the character of who God is and how he sees us. Can we see that before we move on? Or I can just read back the... No, I'm just trying. I won't read through it again. So, 
we could draw many lessons from this profound parable, but I want to zero in on just this one aspect. And this might shock you, maybe it won't. If you've been around here long enough, you've heard a similar take before. But true Christianity is not a matter of moralism, but rather of being alive to the Father. Being alive to the Father, being in healthy relationship, having connection to the Father. Now, I can only hit some highlights on this. I'm praying that me expounding upon the cultural uh, situation here, as you go home, you can continue to associate these things to how God sees you and relates to you. But this isn't about just following rules. It's about having an alive, a lively, an existing connection with the Father. You see, both sons were dead to their father, but only one came to realize it. Both were dead to their father. And there are two types of ways to be dead or lost or alienated from the father. One is to be like the, other, the younger brother, which is just to walk away from the father's love and move to a distant country. See, the younger son was dead to the father through open rebellion and loose living. He had just straight up unashamedly rebelled from the father. There was no connection there. He'd rejected the father's values. He wanted freedom to explore his own ways to live. He was tired of these narrow-minded religious norms that he was dealing with. He felt restricted by the family's religious heritage. Like, these were some of the things that would have been going on here. So in modern terms, what does that look like? He didn't like going out to church every Sunday and missing out on all the fun that he could have engaging in the world and partying it up on a Saturday night and sleeping in so you could do it all over again the next week. This whole church thing, it just seems like a rule. I, I don't want to do it, right? Like rebelling from community, not being alive in community. He or she would not want to move, or he or she would not wait to move as far away from the home as possible from work. So maybe this is, you're like, I can't wait to get out of my parents' house and move and get away. I want to go to college, and I want to live and do things my way. I want to have control. I want to have agency over my life. And I feel like my parents' faith or their religion or whatever other rules and traditions they have has been simply oppressing the true me. And I just want to go figure out life for myself. I want to do things my way because I know better. These are, are some of the ways that this might look. Or, man, I just, I've, I've been saying that I believe a certain thing. I've been acting like I believe a certain thing. But my faith is actually the more hidden reality and my outward reality that people see is nothing like what I say I believe or what I tell my parents I believe or what I might associate with for two hours a week. You're just in straight rebellion and loose living. That is this son. Now, this one's really easy to detect, right? Like, you scroll through the social media and you can tell who might be the wayward son, right? You could tell who might be just doing the explicit rebellion, who might be dead to a relationship with God or with the Father through this means. But the older son was dead to the Father through self-righteous moralism, and using the Father for his own selfish purposes. You see, you'll miss the entire point of this story if you don't see that there were two dead sons. Both sons were dead to the Father. In terms to their relationship with their dad, both of them dead. The good son at home didn't love the Father any more than the one who was rebellious did and who was away in a distant country. 
neither of them loved and had a, a live, vibrant, or really existing whatsoever relationship with their dad. He was lost precisely because of his own goodness. He was lost because he thought he knew better. He was doing things for himself out of this prideful motivation. He was proud of the fact that he always did his duty, and no one could refute that. And his pride made him feel that the father in some way owed him something. You ever felt like, gosh, I've just been doing things the right way. God owes me this. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Look at me, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. God, now it's time for you to do your end of the deal. It's time for you to pull your weight. I've been a faithful worker at my work, and you have not given me. God, I deserve a promotion. You owe it to me. I will sing and pray that you're a God of miracles. Well, how about you don't even have to do a miracle at my work. Just give me what I'm owed, right? Like that kind of idea that I have fulfilled all of my responsibilities, so God, now it's your time to pay up and give me what I am owed. Give me, like just feeling that you're owed something. <clears throat> and he didn't cherish the love of the father either. We see that when the father says, you've always been with me. You've always had access to a vibrant relationship with me, to all the resources I have, but you haven't counted that as a blessing, as anything to be aspired to, as anything to be cherished. He did not cherish the love of the father. He just wanted to use the father to get what he wanted, his own party with his own young goat and his own friends and his own inheritance. He didn't care about his father. But true Christianity, truly following Jesus, is not a matter of using God to get what you want, but rather of loving God because of who he is. I don't perform so that I can receive. Like, because of what God's already done through Jesus on the cross, because of who he is, I already receive. There's nothing more for me to earn. But we can so easily get caught up in this place where I've done this, 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 and this. I've earned this. And I just imagine if God were, were speaking today, say, my son, my daughter, you have simply missed the point. This isn't about what you can give me. This is about what I've already given you. I've already given you everything. Now, your circumstances and the way you feel about them may not indicate that in your small purview of the grandeur that is the universe and everything that he presides over. But you've, he's given you eternal life in him. If you would repent, turn like away from your sins, turn to Jesus, re receive him as your Lord and Savior, you have life abundantly in him. He gave everything in his son on the cross to take the penalty of sin and death so that we could have life and life abundantly. He gave Jesus for us so that we could have everything. Not like walking into Best Buy or Costco everything, but like eternal real things that matter everything. We could be alive with the Father. We could receive all that Christ has given and done for us. But he didn't care about his Father. <clears throat> Christianity is not, at its heart, a manner of moralism and following rules, but being alive toward God in a close, loving relationship with him, experiencing the joy of his grace, which then begs the next question. Well, how do you become alive to the Father? Like, this sounds great. I want to be alive to the Father. 
How do you do that? To be alive to the Father, you have to come to see your own desperate need for his extravagant love and grace. You have to turn from your sin and return to the Father. Turn from your sin and return to the Father. The younger son finally in his degraded condition in this pigsty came to see his need for the Father. Right? Like he, he came face to face with his current reality. And he needed his dad. He realized it because his father was a kind and generous man. Even the hired men that worked for him lived better than he did. Also, recognizing his need and his father's goodness, he left this distant country in his rebellious way of living and returned to the father. He left whatever so-called friends were back in this distant country. He left his attempt to make it on his own and show that his way was better. He left his loose living ways, and he returned to the only one that could help him, his gracious, loving father. The younger son didn't make up excuses for the terrible things he'd done. He didn't come with all his reasons. You see, Dad, when you did this to me when I was seven, it really made me feel this way, and this was my reaction. He didn't come with his like long list of all his excuses and reasons. He didn't blame the father for being too strict or for being too religious or for his religious upbringing. He didn't even blame his legalistic older brother, even though that older brother, let's be honest, may have been one of the reasons he wanted to take off. He didn't blame everybody else. Rather, he openly confessed that he'd sinned against God and against his father. And he returned to his father just as he was. Now, I believe there's some of us in this room today that we realize that we need the father, that we need God. But we're trying to figure some things out so that we don't feel ashamed when we come to him. And I believe what God wants to speak to you through this story is it's not about you getting things right so you can come to him. It's about you coming to him as you are. It doesn't matter if your job would not fit the cultural norms. It doesn't matter, like this, this son, like how dirty you are, how much shame, how much you've disgraced, or what you've done wrong. But wherever you're at right now, God the Father is looking for you to come to him. And he wants to receive you with compassion and with the fullness of what it means to be in his family. It's not a story of get yourself right so that you can present yourself to the Lord. It's a story of bring yourself as you are, and God will not leave you there. He will make you clean. He will make you whole. He will make you alive in your relationship with him. The older brother, however, was blind to his alienation to the father. He didn't see his need for the father's extravagant love. He thought he had everything handled. That he didn't need his grace because he felt that he had earned his place in life. He was a dutiful son. And the father actually owed him a few things. His unawareness of his sin caused him not to see his need for the father's grace. Just give me what I deserve was his heart posture. <clears throat> now many who grow up in the church can be like the younger brother. Where they reject their godly upbringing. They wallow in a moral culture trying to find happiness in sin. But there are also many that are like the older brother if we are honest. Many that keep the rules but don't love the Father. Many that do the things but aren't alive in their relationship, at least not the ones that matter. They don't enjoy the grace that there is to be received from a living, vibrant relationship with God the Father. They don't know his joy and what can come out of that. It's easier to see if you're the younger brother than if you're the older brother, if we're honest with ourselves. <clears throat> So, 
How can we tell if we're the older brother? It's kind of an important question if that's the case, right? If it's harder to tell you're the older brother, how can we tell? Are you angry with God right now? You feel like you've done your part and he hasn't done his and it's caused you to be angry, frustrated, offended? Do you feel that he's unfair toward you? Are you proud of your dutiful obedience? Do you think that God's not treated you as well as you really deserve? Do you despise and want nothing to do with those who are down and out because of their sin? Do you actually want God to judge those people so they can get theirs because you're better and you follow the rules so they need to get theirs to make me feel vindicated in the moral like rule-following life that I have lived? If you see yourself in any of these questions, you may be the older brother. You may be the older brother. And like the lukewarm church of Laodicea, you need to see your true condition, that you are miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Also, you need to see what happens when you see your need to return to the Father. Because when you see your need to return to the Father, when you're willing to recognize your current situation, even if things look good on the outside because you're following rules, the actual condition of your heart, when you see your need and return to the Father, he welcomes you with a joyous acceptance. You see, true joy is not found in some distant country or partying with your worldly friends or deconstructing the faith that your parents have handed down to you because they did it imperfectly and messed up along the way. Because then when you have kids, just wait, you'll mess up things along the way too. That's human nature. None of us get it perfect. That is not true joy. True true joy is also not found slaving in the fields for God when you're angry and bitter because you think he doesn't treat you rightly. True joy is not found in either of those places. It's actually seen when you when you realize how selfish and proud and sinful you have been, yet when you return to the Father in true repentance and brokenness and how he joyously welcomes every repentant sinner when they would come back to him and he brings them to the banquet table. He doesn't say you can go eat in the servants' quarters. He, he makes you the main event. Like you're brought in, you're put in your royal robes, you're reinstated to your status in the family and he celebrates you when you come back to him. He doesn't sit there with some smug grin saying, we'll see if you really mean it. He's looking off in the distance and says, I am so glad you saw where you were at and that you've come back to me. Experience grace. Experience love. Experience the joy that is in him. You see, it costs the Father dearly to provide a way of reconciliation for alienated sinners. It costs him dearly. Because just as the father of the two sons bore the humiliation and shame to be reconciled with them, so the heavenly father sent his son to bear the shame of our sins on the cross. You see, this isn't just about some like nice story of a dad and we're supposed to see how God is in that, but we don't recognize how that's been exhibited and actually played out in real life. Because he sent his son to bear that shame on a cross so that we could be made right before the Father. Just as the Father of the two sons freely gave of his wealth, so the Heavenly Father gave the most costly gift. That's his own son. Worship team, you can come back up. 
So as you grow in your awareness of how much it costs the Father to welcome you back into the family, it won't make you want to move to some far distant country and and live apart from the Father. It won't make you want to stay outside of the party because you feel like it's unfair and you can't believe that a just God would actually rejoice in the salvation of some filthy sinner as this older son sees. You won't feel mistreated when God welcomes brothers, sisters back to him. You'll want to obey the Father joyously because of his abundant kindness towards you and because of the abundant kindness that you see him exhibiting to those around you. That's one of my favorite things about Baptism Sunday when we do water baptisms and we get to hear the stories that led to a place of somebody saying, I want to follow Jesus. I'm giving my life to him and I want everybody to know about it is you get to see that kindness of God and how it's played out in someone else's life. You see, I don't just have to be encouraged by how God showed up and done things in my life. Because I'm in community, and I get to hear every week how he's showing up in other people's lives. In some weeks, I'm like, gosh, it's sure I haven't felt a ton of kindness this week because I wallow in my own circumstances, and all it takes is me talking to a few people that I'm in community with, and I'm like, oh, that's right, he's still doing stuff. Praise God. Like, I, I don't have to sit in that low place because I get to feed off of my family. It's not just about, oh, my circumstances weren't that great this week. Oh, is God still really there? Yes, of course he is. Jesus himself was in the desert for 40 days. He didn't say, I don't know if I'd believe in God, right? Like, we, we can have a little more long-suffering and patience than that, can't we, family? The motive for our obedience is not duty. The motive for our obedience is to have a life-fulfilling relationship with the Father. It's not about following rules. It's about following a person. It's not about trying to earn anything. It's simply about receiving what's already been done for you. And when we recognize it as that, now we get to experience joy. Now we get to experience freedom. Now we get to come into community. And we don't have to worry if someone knows like the bad things we've done in our past because God redeems those things. He welcomes us as we turn from those things. And he brings us around people and around his word to help us move through those things. Do not come in here saying, oh, I just got to get my stuff together so that God will receive me. He already did the work by sending Jesus. Will you receive it? That's the question that this leaves us with. It is a delight to be alive in God. It's a delight. Does that mean that all your problems are gone and everything's just like butterflies and rainbows all the time? Absolutely not. Things are still hard because of the world we live in. But we know that the victory is ultimately won. And we know where we're going and who we're going there with whenever our time here is up. And in that we can find comfort. In that we can find stability and security. Now if you were to ask most people on the street what it means to be a Christian, a lot of them would say they believe it, they, that it means believing in Jesus, going to church and trying to be a good person. Believing in Jesus, going to church and being a good person. And they view heaven as a reward for doing their part. But all they've described there is the joyless older brother. Just believe, do your part, and then you'll be rewarded, right? They have no concept of Christianity as a joyous relationship with a kind, gracious, loving, and accepting father who at a great cost sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins. 
They have no experience of the joy of knowing the risen Savior, of knowing Jesus and who he is and what he has done. They don't realize that true Christianity is not just some matter of moralism, but rather of being alive to God in Christ. Being alive to God in Christ. You're either dead towards the Father or you're alive towards him. There's not like a third path. There's not a, well, I'm alive on a recurring schedule of Monday, Friday, Sunday, but the other days I'm dead. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. Are you alive to God through Christ or are you dead toward him? You may be a dutiful, moral church member, but if you're angry at God and alienated towards him, you are, are, your heart is dead to him. If you're angry and just feeling like he's not treating you right, you're either in the party with the Father or you're outside. There's not an in-between. And then Jesus ends the story with giving the response of the elder brother. And it's an open invitation to this religious older brother who's proud of his morality and he's alienated from the Father. He says, please just, just come in and celebrate Celebrate that he's back, that we're back together, that he once was dead, but now he's alive, that he was lost, and now he's found. Can we celebrate that? So the question this leaves us with, family, is how will you respond to the Father's costly, extravagant love? Will you stand outside, or will you come into the party? How will you respond? So I'm going to close in prayer. And I didn't plan on doing this, but I feel like this warrants like a physical response, not like a jump up out of your seat, stand on your chair and wave your hands kind of response. But we're all gonna bow our heads as I pray. And I'm gonna ask you, if you, if you want to make a decision to recognize that I'm, I'm not alive to Christ in my heart right now, whether it's through rebellion or whether it's through just feeling like God owes me something and I'm angry with him, but you want to make a choice to intentionally pursue being alive in him today, I just want you to raise your hand with every head down and all eyes closed. If that's you and you're like, yeah, I've been dead towards him, but I'm done with that and I want to be alive towards God, just raise your hand high. Raise it up. That's good. If you're like, ah, I don't know if that's me, it's you. <laughs> just raise your hand as a sign of surrendering and saying, God, I want to be alive in you. I don't want to any longer, whether it's trying to live the just moral life or the rebellious life. God, I want you. So, Father, I thank you for every hand that's raised. I pray that you would bring life and life abundantly to every person in this room, God. I pray that you would wash over all the anger and bitterness that may be present towards you. And you would help everybody to have a perspective of who you are, how you love them, how you have met their needs, how you have met their heart in places where maybe they feel alone and isolated. God, I thank you for the work you're doing in them. And for anyone right now, God, that's just been living in rebellion like the younger son, God, I pray that you would help them to recognize the depravity of their current path and head towards you. And would they get to experience the grace of a loving father, welcoming them with open arms, receiving them back to the family table. And would that bring great joy. So we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.